Scooby-Doo, Mystery Incorporated is a TV series which ran from 2010-13 on Cartoon Network. Unlike the 10 previous incarnations of the franchise each of the 52 episodes feeds into a single, overarching mystery. Over the years there have been a great many Scooby-Doo shows and movies. But this show is, I think the single greatest piece of Scooby-Doo content ever made. That is in part because of its characters. Not only are the main quintet allowed personal growth and development, but because of the interconnected nature of the story side characters become memorable additions to the story and some even have arcs. This means it's difficult to analyze them without full knowledge of their arcs. So, we'll start with a short look at each character as they are presented in episode 1.1 The Beast from Below. When we meet the gang, they are speaking with Sheriff Bronson Stone, a man whose first name is actually Sheriff. Sheriff Stone is played by Patrick Warburton and from he moment he is introduced gives off serious J. Jonah Jameson vibes. Sitting with him is Mayor Fred Jones, a man whose only goal is to increase tourism to Crystal Cove by capitalizing on all the spooky creatures the gang spends their time unmasking. His son is Fred Jones a trap-obsessed manchild. Fred comes across very one note early on, he's completely unaware of the romantic feelings that Daphne Blake has for him. I was worried that the characters would be given one trait and have to stick with it, but as the series progresses that is not the case. Daphne was always the weakest addition to the gang, she served one purpose which was to be captured. This time we meet her family who all expect her to be as successful as her sisters. This puts a lot of pressure on Daphne and she isn't very confident in her own abilities. Now we come to Velma, always the best character in any Scooby-Doo media she slams her way onto the scene with a fantastically witty and sarcastic line, before proceeding to berate Norval Shaggy Rogers for not taking their relationship seriously enough. I'll admit that Velma and Shaggy being in a relationship is an odd choice, but stick with it cause the payoff is worth it. Shaggy and his dog Scoobert Scooby-Doo are pretty much unchanged from their original 1969 counterparts. Still food-obsessed, still bait and still like quite annoying at times, but by the end of the series the pair have been through so much they are almost unrecognizable. Before we get into the episodes properly, I'd like to mention the opening titles, the titles are a flowing unbroken sequence which tells you a lot about each character early on. Fred likes traps, Daphne likes Fred. Velma is smart and Shaggy and Scooby eat burgers. Admittedly it isn't much, but it's enough for a basic understanding of these characters. Although by the end of the show the characters are different. The theme tune is so great, I binged this show in two weeks and usually I would skip the titles, but the theme is so much fun I just couldn't. Okay here we go. 1.1 Beware the Beast from Below This is a perfectly fine first episode which juggles the complex task of establishing a world, the characters in it and also telling a concise yet enjoyable mystery. It does all of this extremely successfully. The episode ends with Daphne finding a key-shaped locket, which is really too big to be worn by anyone, and the gang receiving a call from the mysterious mystery sorry, make that mystery, there are also some references to classic Scooby-Doo in Velma's mum's museum. Charlie the Robot, Minor 49er and the Black Knight. This episode's mystery is pretty rubbish, it's not the worst by a long shot, the point odd the episode isn't the mystery so I think it's acceptable. Culprit vs. Costume 1.2, The Creeping Creatures opens with a family who of tourists who stop at a hotel in Gatorsburg, which is just outside of Crystal Cove, they are attacked by some hideous crocodile creatures. The gang received an alligator purse from Mr. E and travel to Gatorsburg to find out more. They stay in a hotel run by the man on the left. The hotel is extremely creepy, red lights bathe everything and a sign reads the dog dies. Then they're attacked by some alligator people. The problem is when you look at the characters side by side, it's so obvious who the villains are, the other problem is that we only meet three people so it has to be them. The town of Gatorsburg supposedly had its own gold rush, except it was alligators? I don't know, seems like strange concept, although compared with some of the things in the show it's quite tame. 1.3, The Secret of the Ghost Rig This episode sees the town terrorized by a ghost truck driver, and Daphne terrorized by the pretentious heir to a ladder company, named Rung Ladderton seriously? Surprise, surprise they are one and the same. Turns out he wasn't interested in Daphne at all, he wanted some knobs, crystal door knobs to be specific. 1.4, Revenge of the Man Crab is an excuse to fetishize Daphne for nearly 22 minutes. A man crab steals hot volleyball players from the beach, but only the ones in bikinis. This episode introduces new recurring side character in Skipper Shelton, who serves as a nice red herring for the episode. While hunting for the man crab it is revealed that the two people inside Daphne's overly large locket are Brad Chili's and Judy Reeves members of the original Mystery Incorporated, a group of mystery-solving kids who disappeared years ago. 
also pebbles and bam bam appear on the beach, so that's nice. 1.5, The Song of Mystery is the most annoying episode of the whole show, it doesn't do anything for the story, the mystery is really dumb and the little girl in it is really annoying. Velma tries to stop Shaggy saying like all the time, and gives him new trousers. By the end of the episode, the audience and Velma understand this is a stupid and boring thing to do and it is scrapped. 1.6, The Legend of Alice May is a weird episode, Alice May nearly steals Fred, but it's okay cause she's evil. Shaggy and Velma's relationship hits a stumbling block when Shaggy has to choose between a Vincent Van Gogh, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, movie marathon or the prom. Once again, the mystery falls to the wayside for the romantic plots to take center stage, while Shaggy and Velma's plotline changes the characters and moves them forward. Fred and Daphne pretty return to where they were at the start. We learn that the whole scheme has been orchestrated by Mr. E, who is now starting to look into the real mystery of Crystal Cove. The end of the episode sees the mysterious Ed Machine release Alice May from prison, it is implied that he works for Mr. E as well. 1.7 In Fear of the Phantom sees the return of the Hex Girls. This is probably one of my favorite episodes as it manages to juggle so much all at once. Not only are the songs really great but the character development for Fred and Daphne's relationship is the best part. When Daphne is kidnapped Fred finally begins to understand the feelings, he has for her. The semi-love triangle between Shaggy, Scooby and Velma is also explored. Scooby is angry that Shaggy abandoned him for Velma and she is becoming jealous of Scooby. Daphne also becomes much more than just obsessed with Fred, she takes on a whole new persona to get over the fact that Fred doesn't seem interested. The examination of her character in this episode is really impressive, especially for a kid's show. It is one of the major reasons why the show appeals to all ages. On the surface this is a show about solving mysteries, but looking beyond it, it becomes a complex character study. Obviously, Daphne's decision to move on from Fred kind of backfires as we know that Fred is now beginning to want to be with her. This will they won't they dynamic continues for a while, it gets a bit repetitive after a while but is sorted out in such a way that all the messing around feels justified. All of this stuff happens inside 22 minutes. Not only that but the mystery is pretty good too, and the motives for the villain make sense. Plus, because almost all the characters are new everyone is a suspect. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, the songs are all memorable and great fun too. 1.8 The Grasp of the Gnome is a weird episode. I've never understood the American obsession with medieval-slash-renaissance fairs, given that they weren't a part of their history. This episode is memorable for one reason only and that is that for once it isn't Daphne who is captured, this time it's Shaggy. This allows Velma to develop a little. She reveals that she and Shaggy are romantically entangled. Which prompts the wonderful double entendre from Fred. You? Points at Velma, Shag. Points at Shaggy, aside from this joke the episode doesn't do much for the overarching plot and the mystery of the week as well, weak. 1.9, Battle of the Humongonauts sees two giant monsters fight over the town of Crystal Cove, prompting Mayor Jones to market them as a tourist attraction. Unfortunately for him the gang unmasked the monsters and solved the mystery. I like this episode because thematically the two plot lines are linked. The monsters battle over the town, as Scooby and Velma vie for Shaggy's affection. It allows Shaggy to have a lot more personality than he ever has done before, and he feels like a part of the story not comic relief or monster bait. I like that he has to choose. I also feel that now it's as good a time as any to ask where the hell all the costumes come from? Does someone sell them? Or is textiles a mandatory class at the school? Yogi Bear stole one too many picnics. 1.10, Howl of the Fright Hound. This week the town is being terrorized by a very violent dog. Sheriff Stone arrests Scooby-Doo and takes him to Crystal Cove's Animal Asylum, where such evil fiends as Yogi Bear reside. But worst of all is the evil Professor Pericles. Once mascot to the original Mystery Incorporated, he is now criminally insane. Right from the beginning he seems terrifying, he's kept in a glass cage and when he escapes the whole town seems really shaken. I like this episode because seeing how evil a mascot can become, we are actually worried that Scooby could be behind all this. Of course, he isn't it just some nerd Velma knew from school who's got hold of a massive robot dog. This episode sees the end of Shaggy and Velma's relationship. Shaggy is mature enough to realize that he isn't ready for a girlfriend yet. The relationship between Velma and Shaggy is not one typically explored in children's television. It's not often that a couple break up mutually, nobody did anything wrong they were just different people who are compatible romantically. They also remain friends which is nice, Velma isn't unceremoniously dumped from the gang, and neither is Shaggy. But their relationship does have long-lasting consequences, less so for Shaggy but Velma is permanently changed by their relationship, 
she feels betrayed by the fact that a boy she genuinely loved chose a dog over her. An understandable response. At no point though is this either condoned or vilified, the show allows Velma to deal with this in her own way. Personally, I think it not only cements the bond between Shaggy and Scooby, but also the bond between all the members of the gang. If I had one criticism of this arc it would be that Velma doesn't really get to be smart for these first few episodes. At times she feels like a copy of Daphne with a few more sarcastic comments, but I'm willing to overlook it as I think it does fit the direction they were going with Velma at this point. Thematically they used Velma to show that despite the new approach to Scooby-Doo, they understand these characters and won't change what works. This arc means that Velma is now the most interesting character of the gang. Which is a little strange, but given that she serves as an exposition dumper usually it's quite nice. Do they really think we're that stupid? 1.11, The Secret Serum follows the gang as they investigate a mysterious vampire loose in Crystal Cove. Because of the events of the previous episode Velma isn't speaking to Shaggy and the gang is split up into two distinct teams. Fred and Daphne's relationship is on the rocks as well. Daphne and Velma become convinced that Daphne's mother is the culprit. But really, look at this picture. Who strikes you as more of a vampire, Nan Blake or Sheila Altoonian? The other thing is that Nan Blake is given some really odd personality traits. Daphne heavily implies she suffers from some quite serious mental issues for instance, every time mother starts sleeping in the backyard treehouse, we hire a doctor, or somebody else in authority, to help us work things out. Then we lock her away for a few months. This is played heavily for laughs but is really quite odd and seems out of place. It happens more than once across the series as a running gag, that just isn't funny. It's really misjudged. I like the idea that the gang's parents could be implicated in the mystery because it adds consequences to uncovering the villain. This episode foreshadows some key events yet to come. The episode ends with the gang in a very bad place. They have split up and are no longer speaking to one another. This is also significant as the first time Fred suggests splitting up is not because they need to search for clues, thus the event holds a great significance. 1.12 The Shrieking Madness parodies H.P. Lovecraft and his creature Cthulhu. It also features a guest appearance from somewhat obscure writer Harlan Ellison. The gang have gone to visit the local university for the day, Shaggy and Velma reconnect over some vegan burgers, Daphne meets a political activist called Ernesto who bears a striking resemblance to Che Guevara. Fred doesn't do anything of note. The gang reunite to save H.P. Haycraft from the terrifying creature Chargar Gothcon, the beast with no name. The gang reform after solving the mystery and realizing that they get on much better as a team. This is a really weird story, the mystery is pretty interesting and it provides a commentary on the relationship creatives have with their fans. But the episode suffers because the way all the conflict is resolved is very weak. The gang returns to the same point they were before they broke up. Daphne and Fred still have a lot of romantic tension and Velma is still angry at Shaggy. This episode is really quite pointless. 1.13, when the Cicada Calls is notable only for being one of the stupidest episodes of this show that exists. So, I'm going to take the time now to introduce the character of Angel Dynamite. I probably should have done it earlier but she hasn't been integral to the plot so far. Angel runs the Crystal Cove radio station. Which the gang use as a sort of base of operations. Angel is pretty cool, but so far not overly important. This episode specifically sees the town attacked by a swarm of bugs. Controlled by an old lady who saw a documentary about penguins being controlled by sound waves and decided that would work on insects? WTF? During the solving of the mystery Fred believes one of the suspects may be trying to steal Daphne. So, when Daphne hears Fred call her his girlfriend, she agrees to go on a date with him, at the Trap Museum. Despite getting accidentally trapped she seems to enjoy her evening and the pair finally begin the relationship they have been together the ground since episode 1. Drastically contrasting the other romantic relationship among the gang which seems to have gone in the opposite direction. 1.14 Mystery Solver State Finals is an homage to classic Hanna-Barbera cartoons and also functions as a parody of all the numerous copies of the Scooby-Doo formula HB trotted out in the 70s. It features characters like Dune Buggy, Jabberjaw, Funky Phantom, and Captain Caveman. The episode is an exploration of the role of a sidekick within the group dynamic pioneered by the Mystery Incorporated gang. Not only is the episode immensely enjoyable but does serious work for Scooby's character. Despite being a dream Scooby shines as the confident leader of a gang of sidekicks and shows just how much he's learned from the other members of his gang. This episode also manages to do what 2020s couldn't and contextualize HB characters within the Scooby-Doo world while still delivering a great mystery, it doesn't rely on celebrity voice actors but on the characters themselves to sell this episode. 
I mean most of the show doesn't feature any of the usual gang, except Scooby, and yet it is still incredibly good fun. Once again clues are dropped about the overarching plot of the series which is still chugging along nicely in the background. The exploration of sidekicks is really well done, establishing what would make one go bad and building on the ideas about Professor Pericles established in 1.10, the continuity and attention to detail in this episode is such that the majority of it is animated in a completely different style, one that is reminiscent of the classic 60s shows. And the fact that this episode is all a dream is fun because on the one hand it has no relevance to the overarching plot whatsoever and on the other it foreshadows some stuff to come in series 2. There is so much more to say about this episode, but I think it's one of the best in the series so I won't spoil much more of it. 1.15 The Wild Brood is the worst episode so far because the villain is a character who we have never seen before therefore rendering the episode completely pointless as there is no way the audience could ever have worked out the mystery. Fred and Daphne's will-they-won't-they relationship is continued here as Fred takes Daphne on a date and then invites the rest of the gang to come along too. Understandably Daphne isn't very pleased by this and so gravitated towards a group of orc bikers. In the end the orcs are revealed to be spotty computer nerds so Daphne chooses Fred instead. The episode ends exactly where it started and nothing whatsoever has changed. It was dull and boring and pointless and I hated it. 1.16 where walks Aphrodite parodies films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Carrie, but doesn't manage to tell an interesting story by itself. It's also one of the few episodes to feature no suspects and once again the culprit is someone no one has ever seen before. Aphrodite takes over the town and only Scooby-Doo and Professor Pericles, being animals are able to escape. They team up to create a cure. But Pericles is busy stealing items to help him with his wider scheme, that all links back to the disappearance of the original mystery incorporated of which he was a part. Once again, the importance of the sidekick is explored but the dull, repetitive emphasis on the love becomes boring, especially because Velma and Shaggy's relationship is over now. It keeps being brought up and dragged into the mud, all the great work done in 1.10 is ruined. What does work about this story is the continuation of Fred and Daphne's relationship. Aphrodite merely exacerbates their mutual love for one another and speeds things along a little, so for that I am grateful. This episode is just an excuse to further the overarching plot, and as such contains a lot of exposition. But it does state outright that Pericles is evil, which was pretty obvious. Ed Machine appears again and reveals to the gang that he works for Mr. E. He also plays the gang a mysterious message left by Professor Pericles. 1.17 Escape from Mystery Manor is effectively a PG Saw movie, if Gollum was orchestrating the traps. It is by far the darkest episode so far. In it the gang learned that the Darrow family were a group of mystery solvers whose house mysteriously disappeared underground a long, long time ago. While chilling at the radio station with Angel Dynamite they find the diary of original Mystery Incorporated member Cassidy Williams, the last entry suggests that they went to the old Darrow mansion and maybe never returned. So, the gang decide to investigate. Once inside the mansion they are split into two groups. Fred and Daphne find themselves at the bottom of a slowly filling swimming pool with only an egg beater and a rock. A mysterious voice implies tells them Fred can escape and leave Daphne to die, but Fred is too clever and his knowledge of traps allows him to save both himself and Daphne, a wonderful moment of development for them both. As Daphne learns to trust Fred and appreciate his love of traps finally. Meanwhile Shaggy, Scooby and Velma are sat within a maze of hanging knives. A note explains that only the smartest of them can solve the trap, Velma and the self-centered belief that this is her proceeds to nearly kill all three of them, a humbling moment for Velma as for once she is proved wrong. It turns out that the traps were laid for the original mystery incorporated of whom Professor Pericles was the smartest member. Scooby helps them escape and Velma begins to see Scooby as more than just an annoying sidekick. After rejoining Fred and Daphne they meet an old man who acts like Gollum. Fred traps him and they find a strange puzzle piece behind a cupboard. They leave the creepy Gollum man locked in his underground house and run away. I like this episode because it really changes the formula and allows us to see how these characters react in different situations. It also shows them that they are not always as great as they think they are. This episode ends with the mayor driving away in his car. So far, he hasn't really done much during the series. He's still Fred's dad and he disapproves of the mystery solving. But he and Sheriff Bronson Stone just serve as comic relief. 1.18 the Dragon's Secret starts out with a Gremlins reference and just gets better from there. A Chinese exchange student comes to Crystal Cove and immediately starts hitting on Shaggy. Velma, who is clearly not over him is very annoyed. Meanwhile Mayor Jones and Fred are showing a delegate from China around town. 
Later that evening at a dinner party held in Mr. Wang's honor they are attacked by a Chinese wizard who is after the heart of the dragon. What ensues is a battle between two of these wizards. The evil one is defeated and the revealed to be Mr. Wang. The rings are returned to the owner of the local Chinese restaurant who also happens to be the other wizard. Myla the exchange student goes back home and all seems fine. Until Shaggy finds her escaping on a boat after having stolen the heart of the dragon for herself. This is a delightful twist that plays with the typical narrative of a Scooby-Doo episode and allows the gang to be proven wrong. Something which happens a few more times in the series. I also love that all the clues are there and she isn't just a twist villain thrown in for the sake of it. She is a truly interesting antagonist. 1.19, Night Fright would be an utterly forgettable episode if it were not for the brilliant character of Vincent Van Gogh a creation that serves as a means of parodying Vincent Price films. This episode doesn't serve the overarching narrative and the mystery is serviceable at best but Vincent Van Gogh is such a perfect parody the episode is worth watching for him alone. Other than that, there is nothing much to say. At this point I'm going to provide a quick update on our side characters. Angel Dynamite is still the local DJ. Sheriff Stone is still an incompetent fool. And Fred and his dad seem to be getting along really well, we don't see anyone else's parents much. Pericles is still lurking somewhere and Mr. E has yet to reveal his identity. 1.20, the siren song features a mermaid and the return of Ernesto from 1.12. The gang are all busy so Velma investigates a mystery that sees fishermen disappearing near an old oil rig. Velma meets a mermaid called Amy and seems to be getting on very well with her, until Skipper Shelton disappears. While discussing this latest development with the gang angled dynamite suggests that the oil rig might be owned by local company Destruido. When the gang go to investigate, they are fobbed off by Ed Machine, a character who has appeared a few times and appears to be a puppet for Mr. E. They use Daphne's father's boat to travel to the oil rig and find that the evil fish freaks intend to drill for oil and cause a huge spill. Amy returns and saves the day revealing that she is in fact a human in a mask. This really upsets Velma as she had begun to open up again, she was finally getting over Shaggy but she was betrayed again. This has consequences for Velma in the future. The real villain is in fact Ernesto who has the stupidest motivation of all time. Luckily this doesn't go unrecognized as can be seen in this quote. Velma, hold on. Are you telling us that you are going to cause a major environmental disaster in order to get the cash to protest against major environmental disasters? Ernesto, yes. You must be willing to kill the environment to save it. Mystery Incorporated, in unison, or no. I don't think that's right. This joke makes the episode 10 times more enjoyable than it would have been otherwise. That and the fact that Flimflam and Scrappy-Doo, characters responsible for the near end of Scooby-Doo are in Velma's mother's museum as villains. Fred, look away Daphne. We all promised each other that we would never speak of him. Not ever. The episode continues the long-running jabs taken at Scrappy which started in the 2002 live-action movie. This is so unnecessarily cheeky that I love it. It wouldn't make any sense to the target audience at the time but looking back at Samantha, this is one of my favorite episodes of series 1. The episode ends with Velma dropping the bombshell that she believes Angel Dynamite to be Cassidy Williams of the original Mystery Incorporate. The twist is truly shocking and yet totally supported by events up to this point, Angel provided the gang with the diary that led them to the Darrow Mansion after all. 1.21, Menace of the Manticore sees the local amusement park creepy spooky terror land attacked by a mysterious monster. The gang visits Mayor Jones who is busy looking for a book in the library. He believes it may have appeared because he ordered an ancient Persian temple on haunted attractions for sale. Scare paying for it in leftover K. Horrifico t-shirts made during the Song of Mystery. At the amusement park the gang meet Hot Dog Water a sort of anti-Velma played by Linda Cardellini which is a genius piece of casting. Everything about Hot Dog Water serves to contrast Velma, she's much thinner, she has armless yellow-tinted glasses, an ill-fitting jumper and has long, oily hair held up with plastic barrettes as opposed to Velma's bows. But the characters are very similar otherwise and can fill the role of Velma when asked. During the episode Hot Dog Water is unmasked as the manticore because of the distinctive odor of hot dog water that follows her. I'm going to tackle Hot Dog Water towards the end of this review as there will be much more to unpack by the end. Velma and Hot Dog Water Meanwhile key elements of the overarching narrative continue to unfold. Angel Dynamite confirms that she is indeed Cassidy Williams when she visits Mr. E at Destruido. He finally reveals his identity, as the final member of the original Mystery Incorporated, Ricky Owens. Angel is working for Mr. E and assisting him in his search for the planispheric disc. She has placed a bug on Velma and discovered that Shaggy and Scooby have the first piece. But he says they cannot move while Fred is still alive. 
It is important to note that this information is revealed only to the viewer. Rick Spartan 1.22 The Headless Horror sees the introduction of Rick Spartan a character reminiscent of adventures like Indiana Jones. Spartan has possibly the stupidest character design in the whole show. He is a literal triangle. In this episode the gang meet their new biology teacher, Spartan, an idol of Fred's who is being attacked by a terrifying headless Amazonian monster. After a while Fred traps the creature which turns out to be Spartan's wife Marion. She was fed up with Spartan constantly putting them in danger and wanted them to settle down. After seeing what happens if you throw your love away on someone who will never reciprocate it Velma finally decides to move on properly from Shaggy, they reconcile and are friends again. But not before Shaggy attempts to get back with her. This is a complex dynamic as Velma could easily have got what she thought she wanted and returned to Shaggy, but once again she makes the mature decision to leave him for good. This episode also continues what was set up in 1.18, the gang and Sheriff Stone make a mistake. They aren't infallible they get it wrong sometimes, it's humbling for them. But this episode also has an utterly ridiculous explanation for how the headless horror is able to manipulate its stomach mouth. Apparently the culprit has trained her abdominal muscles to control it. This was the point where I shouted at the television. It was just too stupid. The Headless Horror 1.23, a haunting of Crystal Cove opens with a Fred's father, Mayor Jones placing a piece of the mysterious and up until now, elusive planispheric disc into a safe above his bed. Before promptly being attacked by a shadowy figure. Fred promises to solve this mystery and states that if he is unable to, he will never solve a mystery again. On first watch this seems to be another in a long line of stupid things Fred does. But upon reflection it is easy to see that the reason he makes this promise is because he has deep admiration and respect for his father and wants to be shown the same devotion in return, it provides some much needed exploration of the dynamic between father and son, we even see a picture of Fred's late mother. The episode concludes with the reveal that Professor Pericles was the spooky phantom terrorizing Mayor Jones, because Jones stole the professor's piece of the planispheric disc. The reveal that Pericles is behind the mystery this episode changes the lens through which all future episodes need to be looked at. It uses the recurring setting to allow the side characters to be a constant consideration, now the culprit could be anyone in Crystal Cove not just someone introduced in the episode you are watching. This sufficiently ups the tension and makes Pericles seem all the more terrifying as he has changed the very fabric of the show. 1.24 Dead Justice is an episode in which almost nothing happened, it serves as development for Patrick Warburton's character, Sheriff Stone, who up until this point has had some excellent comedic moments but seemed a little bland otherwise. The sheriff is pushed out of his job because a mysterious ghost sheriff has been solving all the town's crimes, and he does it for free. There are also some key pieces of development for Fred, he asks his father for recognition after solving the crime and Mayor Jones refuses to give it, he walks away in the opposite direction. Fred and Daphne's relationship culminates in a proposal from Fred, who has finally decided he wants to take things seriously. They both kiss which is a landmark even, in animation at least, and really cements the finality of this choice. Most of the main arcs are over now, at least the ones that concern core character relationships which allows the final episodes of the series to stand out. 1.25, Pawn of Shadows is an incredible culmination of all we have learned across this series. It opens with the original mystery incorporated exploring an old Spanish church whilst being observed by a mysterious creature known only as the Freak of Crystal Cove. Meanwhile in the present Daphne realizes the writing on their pieces of planispheric disc is in Spanish and the gang decide to visit H.P. Haycraft again in the hope he can translate it for them. Haycraft has problems of his own because he is being forced to write like Regina Wentworth author of the highly successful Dusk novels I think it's clear who this is parodying and as an avid Twilight hater myself I enjoyed the piss take. After convincing Haycraft to give them a hand they witness the destruction of the mystery machine. A moment which clearly divides this episode in future ones from all previous Scooby stories, from here on and it gets dark. After a frantic search the gang find the mystery machine again and rescue their pieces of the planispheric disc. Among the objects in the mystery machine, they find a clue which leads them to the old Spanish church. They are almost defeated by the evil obliteratrix but Angel Dynamite shows up and becomes an absolute badass. They unmask the obliteratrix and reveal that she is in fact Alice May who was released from prison by Mr. E's associates at the end of 1.6. Everything had been orchestrated by Mr. E to distract Pericles from his recently obtained piece of the disc. Dynamite reveals her identity to the rest of the gang, Velma already knew, and warns them that the reason the original gang had to leave Crystal Cove was that their families were threatened after they found a map. With the gang's best interests at heart, she attempts to get them to give their disc piece away to save themselves. 
The gang obviously don't listen and as they drive away the menacing figure of the freak is seen watching them. 1.26, All Fear the Freak is the final episode of season 1 and it is a truly incredible finale. The gang have decided to actively search for more pieces of the planispheric disc and begin to do so in the mayor's office at City Hall. They discover some interesting evidence but are attacked by the freak. As they make their escape, they are apprehended by Sheriff Stone. The series mirrors its opening with the gang in the town cells again. The mayor arrives and decides not to pursue charges but expresses his disappointment. Daphne reveals her engagement to Fred and her parents are very angry. Shaggy's parents consider sending him to military school. The freak attacks again and Ed Machine rescues the gang at the behest of Cassidy Williams. After dropping them off at the radio station his is brutally murdered by Pericles however. The gang chase the freak all over town before eventually reaching the cliff. It collapses beneath Fred but the freak saves his life. Fred drops the bombshell that the culprit is in fact his father Mayor Fred Jones. Admittedly this reveal that you spot a mile off but it is foreshadowed well by episodes like 1.11 and Mr. E's ominous warnings about Fred. I was genuinely impressed that the show dared to do this, and it's not even done yet. Mayor Jones revealed that it was he, in conjunction with Professor Pericles who drove the old gang out of town. He then tells Fred that Brad Chili's and Judy Reeves are his real parents and that he stole Fred as a baby so that Brad and Judy would never return. Fred is understandably distraught that his life has been a lie. And watching it back I'm amazed at just how dark this reveal is, I mean this is a cartoon meant for 10-year-olds and it's just dropped a storyline about child abductions and blackmail. Fred ends his engagement with Daphne right then and there, and goes of in search of his real parents. Shaggy is packed off to military school and Scooby to a farm. Pericles makes off with the disc pieces and the gang is left in disarray. The ending is brutal, it's unclear what will happen next. Nothing will be the same again. Series 1 of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated is a mixed bag. Some episodes are downright awful and some are amazing. It blends an overarching narrative with tightly paced individual narratives in a fresh and inventive new take on the classic Scooby-Doo ideas. It pays homage to nearly every classic horror movie released since 1960 and even some older ones. It's a show with huge appeal to a wide range of audiences and I think it's amazing. The review of the first series has taken a really long time so I don't know when my series 2 review will be. But I'm working on it. See you soon. This is part 2 of my review of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. If you haven't read part 1 then I recommend you do. I've linked it here. https colon slash slash anonymousautistic.wordpress.com slash 2021 slash 09 slash 12 slash Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated slash. Series 2 picks up a few months after the events of Series 1, judging by Fred's beard. Mayor Jones is in prison and I am still reeling from that reveal. It subverts everything Scooby-Doo has ever done, the mystery becomes properly personal now. It marks a huge shift in narrative, the gang have real drive to find out what is going on with the planispheric disc and that is made clear in series 2 as the focus shifts much more to the overarching narrative with almost every episode adding to it as opposed to only 6 or 7 of the previous series episodes contributing anything useful. This shift is signposted clearly and makes actual sense it feels like this was the plan and it doesn't feel dragged out, or rushed. So, let's get into the series. Spoilers ahead. 2.1, The Night the Clown Cried is a great opening episode. It showcases how lost the town is without the gang, Sheriff Stone is completely out as depth he is being chased by a terrifying man-baby clown played by Mark Hamill who is amazing as usual. We are then introduced to the new mayor of Crystal Cove. Mayor Nettles is very different to Mayor Jones, she is much more interested in looking after the town and making sure the people feel safe, as opposed to Mayor Jones' view that the monster should be used for tourism. Then, a mysterious masked figure prompts Nettles to find Mystery Incorporated because they are the only ones who can save the town. There are no opening titles which says a lot, the gang is disbanded so the very fabric of the show is broken. This metatextuality is not only very clever but foreshadows some stuff to come later on. Meanwhile Scooby has been locked away in solitary confinement on a farm. His devotion to his friends and stopping Pericles is such that he will do anything to escape, he makes another attempt to leave and is picked up by Nettles who gives him all the information she has on the gang. Scooby sets up to find them. While on parade Shaggy is interrupted by a tank smashing through the wall. Scooby drives Shaggy out of the base and off in search of Fred. Fred has been searching door to door for his parents and has a dreadful beard, it complements Shaggy's buzz cut and once again marks a visible change, these are not the characters you used to know they have been changed by the experiences of 1.26. Fred agrees to come back and solve the mystery of the evil clown but promises to return to the search for Brad and Judy once they're done.
The gang are rejoined by Velma and go to pick up Daphne. But Daphne is now in a relationship with Baylor Hotner, Taylor Lautner, of the Dusk movie franchise, Twilight to You and I, this continuity within the universe is unnecessary but very much appreciated. It also shows that there have been consequences after their breakup. Not like the fake-out in Series 1, this time the gang might struggle to reform. After another attempt to convince Daphne to come back Fred decides she will eventually return when they need her and sets a trap for the clown. But it fails as Daphne never shows up. Not only does this leave Fred very upset but it also means the clown has escaped. It shows how vital each member of the gang is and that they are all required to solve mysteries. The ending plays with the typical formula and doesn't make last season's cliffhanger into a pointless spectacle it will instead be resolved properly and treated with the respect it deserves. The episode ends and for the first time, no one has been unmasked. The gang have failed. 2.2 The House of the Nightmare Witch In this episode we find out what Velma had been up to after the events of the season finale. It turns out she had decided to work for Mr. E, in the hope that she could find the missing pieces of planispheric disc before he could. The episode also sees the return of Linda Cardellini's hot dog water. The gang bring HDG in to replace Daphne who is still refusing to talk to any of them. Once again, the episode opens with no title sequence, emphasizing the fact that the show is different. During the course of the mystery Fred becomes suspicious of Velma, he's worried she may be lying again. Something justified by what happened last series with Cassidy Williams. The world begins to grow in this episode. The events start to involve the whole world, something very important for setting up the final part of the overarching narrative. The overarching narrative becomes a weekly part of the story with the gang uncovering a third piece of the planispheric disc. It makes sense to change the series like this and the main narrative never distracts from each individual mystery, it's very well handled and doesn't feel drawn out at all. 2.3 The Night the Clown Cried 2, Tears of Doom This episode concludes the mystery of the scary Mark Hamill baby. With Daphne having left, the gang had to ask Hot Dog Water to help them out. This is a significant change to the show and the titles reflect that. Daphne is replaced by HTG in the title sequence. The episode follows the gang as they track the clown to the airbase, where Fred goes full Tom Cruise and jumps onto the plane. In the end it is revealed that the clown is in fact Baylor Hotner. Once again, the series shows its hatred of Twilight, and the revelation leads Daphne to rejoin the gang. Personally, I think this is a little weak, Daphne had been shown to be a strong independent character and this rips that to shreds, she falls back into Fred's arms because the story needs her too, there is an argument to be made that she wasn't really interested in Hotner but even so the speed of her turnaround is a little fake. Okay, so I saw this series a while ago and it's taken me so long to do this review I can't quite remember when some of the key events happen, so. Fred's parents come back, they are really weird. Their original members of Mystery Incorporated Brad Chili's and Judy Reeves, they look completely different to the way they did in the flashbacks last season but they kinda mirror an older Fred and Daphne. They also have a dog who Scooby starts hitting on, she can't talk. Yet. 2.4, Web of the Dreamweaver. This episode parodies films like Labyrinth, the villain looks exactly like Bowie did, and Nightmare on Elm Street. The explanation of how the culprit committed his crimes is utterly nonsensical and brings the episode down. But there is some great development for Sheriff Stone as we learn more about his childhood. This is probably the worst one so far as it's just a little too ridiculous. 2.5 The Hodag of Horror is an episode about ancient Spanish cheese which happens to contain the fourth piece of the planispheric disc. The main villain turns out to be using a monkey to steal the cheese for himself. It's a super weird premise which serves no purpose other than to facilitate the finding of the disc piece. I don't like it because unlike most of the other episodes the mystery seems to have been secondary to the overarching plot. It feels so shoehorned in. 2.6, Art of Darkness features a parody of artist Andy Warhol, Randy Warsaw, and a Transformer. Plus, a cameo from some Velvet Underground types. It's a really weird episode but it does allow Daphne to flourish when the rest of the gang become part of Randy's art piece. She ends up solving the case herself. It had some neat concepts but was passable at best. Enjoyable but nothing to write home about. 2.7 The Gathering Gloom successfully dissects the classic mystery trope that it's never the most obvious or most evil-looking subject. The episode feeds you one narrative while hiding another in plain sight. Shaggy, Fred and Daphne follow clues to solve a typical mystery while Velma and Scooby team up with the sheriff and catch the culprit who turns out to be the obvious suspect all along. It's such a good idea to misdirection the viewer in this way and ask them to re-evaluate the way they look at these mysteries in the future. It also gives Daphne a chocolate addiction for some reason. 
Another thing that happens is that Pericles and Mr. E team up again after a flashback to how they first met. This is useful as it establishes their relationship, but it also makes it clear that talking animals are a regular thing in this universe, without explaining why. 2.8 Night on Haunted Mountain Has references to Castaway in the Hills Have Eyes. But is otherwise pretty plot-focused. The gang are called to the mountain overlooking the town where they find an old ship buried in the rock. This is the ship which belonged to the original Spanish settlers when they came to America. They brought with them a mysterious sarcophagus which now sits beneath Crystal Cove. It contains the treasure and the planispheric disc is the only thing which shows its location. Regular shenanigans happen and the gang solve a mystery. Then as they are leaving the real-life ghost of a conquistador whispers the word Nibiru to the audience and the credits roll. WTF. This leaves me with so many questions, it confirms the existence of actual ghosts finally explaining why no one ever just presumes it's a man in a mask. And is also really clever because if you do your homework and find out what Nibiru means you are a few steps ahead of the other characters. I'm not going to tell you yet, but if you really want you could google it. Or just wait like 3 more episodes for it to be revealed to the gang. 2.9 Grim Judgment is one of my personal favorite episodes, not because of the plot but because of the random reference to the TV show Heart to Heart. Fred asks his parents to help him out with a trap cause Daphne is in danger so his parents tell him that they are so good at traps they had a TV show made about them, Sternum to Sternum. Then there is a shot-for-shot remake of the opening titles for Heart to Heart featuring Brad and Judy. It's so utterly out of place in a kid's show as no one watching it would get it, and that makes it even funnier. A relationship also starts to blossom between Mayor Nettles and the Sheriff. The logical continuation of the previous relationship Stone had with the Mayor. There was some clear romantic tension. This episode also forced me to once again question the logic of the monster costumes. The height of the creature is never the same as the culprit. Do they all wear stilts? I need to know goddammit. 2.10 Night Terror sees the return of the family featured all the way back in 1.2, which is not only nice for continuity but it reminds you to go back and look again at that episode as there are clues within it which will be required later on, It's this interconnectivity and dedication to continuity that sets the show apart from other Scooby-Doo media and it is above and beyond what is required. The episode itself sees the gang visit the local library which hardly anyone knew about, probably because it's on top a huge snowy mountain, the inside has been ripped straight from The Shining. While inside the gang learn of a curious pattern which is intrinsically linked to the planispheric disc. For centuries groups of four people and an animal mascot have been drawn to the disc, a group of monks and their donkey, steampunk adventurers who own a mystery train and an orangutan, four cowgirls and a bull, four Zoroesque teens and a talking skunk and many more besides. This is not only a pretty funny idea but builds on the similarities and tropes found in Scooby-Doo, it may also be a dig at the number of Scooby clones released in the wake of his success, it is a way of celebrating Scooby's history and his future and links every era of Hanna-Barbera together. But we'll talk more about that at the end. These other mystery gangs also expand the threat that the planispheric disc holds as it has the power to create groups like Mystery Incorporated across the world and throughout history. The episode is one of very few to feature a somewhat real monster. It turns out that much of what transpired in the episode was caused by Magic Dreamwood. Although this seems a little far-fetched it is by no means the weirdest the show gets and acts as a way to ease the audience and the gang into accepting the idea that sometimes the threat isn't just a man in a mask, It also introduces this idea to the audience in a way that they will accept, unlike the live-action movies which throw you in at the deep end. Although the mystery is lackluster the episode achieves an awful lot in 20 minutes that will impact the story from now on so it's pretty important. 2.11, The Midnight Zone is a truly weird episode, it is revealed that the final piece of the planispheric disc was tossed into the ocean by the conquistadors and so the gang, Along with Cassidy Williams borrow a submarine from obscure HB characters Tom and Tub and investigate what's going on under the sea. Professor Pericles is also looking for the disc so sends some evil Nazi robots down to the bottom of the ocean to steal it. During a confrontation Pericles steals the disc and Cassidy sacrifices herself to save the gang. This death really ups the stakes as Cassidy has been a major character and her sacrifice not only makes Pericles look worse but changes everything about the show going forward. It becomes really dark from now on. 2.12, 2.12, Scare Bear is a bad episode, the mystery is terrible the setup is awful and the reveal is dull. It is shown that Scare Bear is just a normal bear who got mutated because Destroido are bad. We know they are bad, we've seen it so many times, it's not shocking it's just boring now. Uck, I hated it. 
2.13 Wrath of the Krampus features a Great Ocean-style switcheroo wherein it is revealed that the gang orchestrated the whole mystery to distract Pericles and steal the remaining disc pieces. The episode ends with Fred leaving his parents behind and the gang taking Brad and Judy's dog Nova for plot-related reasons which will become apparent soon. There are some inconsistencies within the switcheroo that bugged me but I can overlook them because of the cameos. We live in an age now where nostalgia is being weaponized and I think this show knows exactly how to do it. It rewards you with appearances from classic HB characters and then also features recurring characters from within the show itself. This episode brings back all the unmasked villains of S1 and 2 as the gang enlists them to enact their plan. Even Charlie the Robot makes an appearance, after being teased right the way back in 1.1. Once again it asks you to remember that this is a world populated by real people not one-and-done villains which is so important for world-building, continuity and the finale. 2.14 Heart of Evil features many Johnny Quest references and proves that Blue Falcon can exist alongside Scooby-Doo without drastically changing the genre, I'm looking at you here Scoop. But while this episode does feature many of the same tropes as a usual episode it sacrifices a standard plot for a more Batman-like mystery fails as there is no way it could have been guessed. This is such a shame especially because the gang are integrated so well into the central plot. An enjoyable episode but one that doesn't quite fit next to the others, and is nowhere near as good as 1.14. 2.15, Theater of Doom is an episode which does a plethora of things very successfully, it is a on the surface an episode which brings back fan-favorite Vincent Van Gogh for a light and fluffy episode set in a theater, but it is the subject of the play being performed that is truly interesting, the writers use the play as an exposition dump to explain the origins of Crystal Cove and also of the Fraternitas Mysterium a group of mystery-solving monks and their talking donkey. By intertwining the exposition amongst the plot, the young audience learns key information without even expecting it. And to top it all off there is a conclusion to a joke set up early in Series 1 involving side character George Avocados, this is such a clever use of the rule of three and one I don't want to spoil here as it is worth taking a look at for yourself. 2.16, Aliens Among Us is an episode I don't particularly enjoy, it certainly has things going for it. I enjoy its jabs at conspiracy nuts but it is a poorly laid out mystery as Velma discovers an answer at the same time we do. The plot sees Sheriff Stone haunted by the possible memory he may have been abducted by aliens as a child. It builds on the events of 2.10 which created a question amongst the audience and inside Velma's mind as to whether these creatures might actually be real. It means that instead of automatically disbelieving the idea of real aliens Velma takes them somewhat seriously. In a lesser show this would be given no thought Velma's character would shift with no reason but this show knows it needs to build the idea of real monsters and make its audience believe in the easiest way to do that is use the calculating and logical Velma, if she believes it the audience will too. 2.17 The Horrible Herd opens with my favorite quote from the whole show, either your sister's turned up or that's the ugliest cow I've ever seen. This is a line that most definitely went over my head when I saw the show in 2013 but I really enjoyed it now. The episode continues to up the stakes with another character death, Nova goes out in much the same way as Mufasa. We don't know Nova very well but she clearly knows Scooby and her death serves to motivate him as he has very few other connections other than Shaggy. I think it could have been handled better, I would have liked to see more of the dynamic between the dogs but it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Once again, these monsters are real, Pericles has created a herd of demonic cows in the Destruido labs. The episode ends with the destruction of the town hall, a building I haven't mentioned much but one that has been a prominent feature of the show, a solid dependable image in the background of shots and its destruction is not only a show of power for the villain but explains the ramifications of the overarching story, it will affect the world not just the gang. 2.18, Dance of the Undead is another great musical episode, the Hex Girls are back in their original outfits and the homages to album covers are abundant, from madness to parallel lines. The songs are top-notch and the episode ends with a battle of the bands reminiscent of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I love the idea of a band faking their own deaths to allow them to write the perfect song. The Scottastics are an enjoyably stupid set of zombies and this episode really acts a breath of fresh air after the dark tone of the previous few episodes. As an audience we are able to relax and the tension eases. The episode ends with a lovely piece of musical continuity. The gang asks the Hex Girls to help them decode the planispheric disc as it features musical notes along the edge, when decoded the notes are those of the theme, we as an audience have come to associate with mystery, Mr. E has been using it as his own theme and it's appeared within the show itself, acting as a password multiple times and E has even been seen to play it on the guitar. It's also a core part of the opening title theme. 
Now we come to understand it is the Nibiru theme the fact that this musical synergy can be charted right back to the start of the series is truly incredible and shows just how well planned this story was from start to finish. It foreshadows a lot to come and becomes something that links characters across time. Once again, the music in this series proves to be one of the best parts. Oh, and Velma's arc of accepting the unexplainable is furthered here as the Scott Tastics and the Hex Girls both have access to a hitherto unimagined world of music magic. Something Velma has to accept because there simply isn't time to object. It's small but it advances this character arc and it's great that so many strands of narrative can be woven together successfully. 2.19 The Devouring sees the return of Rick Spartan as the gang try to stop an evil gluten monster. The episode has little to no relation to the plot and to be honest has a pretty boring mystery at the heart of it. 2.20 Stand in Deliver features a single good joke revolving around the family who appear to be one semi-permanent vacation. Their car is stopped by a highwayman and the wife becomes infatuated by him, so much so that she decides to leave her husband for him. A tad extreme, but given the danger he's gotten them into over the series it is at least somewhat justified. The main question this episode raises for a British viewer is what is up with the sexualization of the English by the writers, have they been to Kent? The episode does do one thing for the plot of the series, Nova returns, possessed this time by who knows what, and explains that centuries ago interdimensional beings came to Earth and inhabited the bodies of animals. Scooby is a descendant of these beings and so is able to talk. It also explains why all the other mystery-solving gangs had talking animals too. I like this explanation, it ties into the lore of this show in an interesting way, it doesn't make Scooby into a god the explanation doesn't reconcile the character it just explains something we've been happy to ignore, plus it makes sense it's not convoluted or brought up again it serves a plot purpose as it shows how much of an impact the beings have had on us as a species. It's smart writing and great fan service, plus if you don't like it, you can ignore it. 2.21, The Man in the Mirror is a really well executed high concept story, which plays out in two different time periods at once, it keeps you guessing right till the end and tells a very different mystery story to the one we've come to know. Fred is knocked out and finds himself in a world where the Nibiru, end of the world, event has happened. Everyone is dead, except Daphne who is now really old. Meanwhile the rest of the gang meet up with a Fred who does all the same things Fred usually does but under the surface is really a completely different character. It turns out old Daphne is in fact Judy Reeves and weird Fred is Brad Chili's. They've had plastic surgery to become their new identities, they want Fred to reveal the location of the planispheric disc. On paper this idea sounds stupid but using the old movie set in town Brad and Judy actually managed to trick Fred and the gang. This episode shows just how terrible Fred's parents really are and makes us understand that really Mayor Jones was a good father. The episode is a Fred character study and it's really clever about it. Fake Fred is not much different from the Fred you might have seen in Scooby-Doo Where Are You? But Fred has changed a lot over the course of this series and the audience are able to see clearly how much he has changed when presented with what he used to be. The show uses the character development Fred has had as a vital clue for the audience to pick up on if they want to solve the mystery. Throughout the episode we revisit all the locations and townsfolk we've seen since series 1 subtly reminding us of who they are and what they do. This is a masterclass in writing, it requires you to use an intimate knowledge of pop culture icons like Fred to solve a mystery that is less about evil monsters and more about the evil that lurks within dull character writing. We also learn that deep underneath Crystal Cove is a sarcophagus brought there by the Conquistadors. Because the sarcophagus is made of crystal it is the treasure everyone has wanted for ages, only it turns out that inside the sarcophagus is an evil entity who has been manipulating groups of four humans and an animal to break it free for centuries. Something that will have an impact on the gang when they learn this information next episode. And at this very moment is controlling Professor Pericles into doing his bidding. 2.22 Nightmare in Red goes full on sci-fi fantasy. The whole episode is a 20-minute homage to Twin Peaks, a show that no one in the intended audience should have seen. And yet it still holds up as its own piece of television despite all that. Due to some weird dreams Scooby has been having the gang visit a professor of dream science for help. He sends them into the dreamscape, while there they leave a lot more about the history of the evil entity, how a group of Mayan adventurers tried to destroy the sarcophagus with an artifact known simply as the heart of the jaguar. Shenanigans ensue and the gang make it out, just about. There are some truly beautiful character moments in this show and one of my favorites comes in this episode. Velma, being the logical person she is, struggles to understand how this fantasy stuff can be real, it doesn't fit her worldview and she has a breakdown about it. Instead of just moving on show takes the time to reassure Velma and the audience that everything is going to be okay, the gang will tackle this in much the same way they always do, 
they'll use the skills learned over the course of nearly 52 episodes to stop this evil entity. It's such a genius moment because the writers have an intimate knowledge of Scooby-Doo and its fans, they understand that people need to be eased in slowly and this is the perfect way to end Velma's arc of self-discovery throughout the latter half of the series. The final shot calls back to classic Scooby as the house the gang leave is the one from the original 1969 opening as if to say, it's okay we won't stray too far from the roots of the show, they're always there, always remembered. 2.23, Dark Knight of the Hunters is a 22-minute Indiana Jones spoof, complete with map travel. The gang travel to South America to retrieve the heart of the Jaguar. You would think this might be an opportunity to use Rick Spartan again, but instead another new character is introduced. It is necessary to keep the pretense of mystery going but I would have preferred a further exploration of Spartan as he's a pretty good character, it also means his return a few episodes prior seem redundant. This one serves one purpose and it does that well, there was just a lot of missed opportunity. The series ends with a three-part finale, Gates of Gloom through the curtain and come undone. Because they all tell one story, I'm gonna tackle them together, get ready. Before the finale begins the show rounds out all the character development it's been working on across the run. Fred embraces his love for Daphne and Velma accepts the unexplainable, again. Also, Sheriff Stone completes a really well-rounded plotline about accepting a new mayor. After the events of 1.26 he was left unable to trust anyone in a position to authority over him. This series introduced us to Mayor Nettles a badass Air Force pilot who the sheriff eventually decides to profess his love for. The plotline has been happening in the background for the whole of the series and was never really worth mentioning but it just shows how much the writers care about even their secondary characters. The gang return from their trip to South America to find the whole town has been kidnapped by Pericles and his army of Nazi robots, they are being forced to dig under Crystal Cove to find the evil entity, after an action-packed second half the gang lead a mutiny and allow the town's folk to escape, we see fan favorites like Skipper Shelton leading a hand and it's so nice to see that the world feels truly populated, the townsfolk aren't a nameless whore they are a group we have come to know and love. In the end though the gang are unable to stop Pericles opening a doorway to the cursed treasure and have to follow him into a new dimension. Once through the doorway a visually stunning world of endlessly imaginable possibility is seen. The gang traverse four different worlds each representing an element. Pericles catches up to them as they cross a bridge between two floating islands, he is hot dog water hostage and threatens the gang if they don't help him. The gang distract him and manage to get a head start. Leaving HDW behind as a distraction, it is made very clear that she doesn't survive. After crossing the earth, water and fire dimensions the gang reach the sarcophagus of the evil entity. He explains that they are the last in a long line of five people he has brought together to save him, that their friendships mean nothing and he controlled them from the start. All seems lost until Daphne uses the power of character development to declare that her love for Fred and the bond, she shares with each of the others is most definitely real, even if they had been brought together on purpose their friendships are something that cannot be faked, a fact exemplified by looking at the old Mystery Incorporated who were brought together in much the same way and have come to hate each other. The show uses its antagonists as a mirror image of the protagonists, only, unlike a Marvel movie they are well-rounded characters not just color-swapped versions. It is at this point that Pericles appears and releases the entity from its sarcophagus. The final episode opens with the obligatory destruction of the primary antagonist, Pericles, by the new one, evil entity, within seconds we know everything is over. The gang can only run from his power, in a scene remarkable similar to one in Shang-Chi the evil entity releases a swarm of minions who bring the townsfolk to the entity so he can consume them, we watch a side character after side character is devoured. And soon the whole town is gone. The gang try to stop the entity with the heart of the jaguar but they learn that power is not contained within the gemstone but within the gang themselves. And so, with the power of friendship the day is saved, the entity is returned to his coffin. The show does something quite incredible for a kid's program, for a while at least we believe that maybe only the gang have survived, but then the screen goes wide and the gang wake up in a perfectly repaired version of Crystal Cove, everyone is back. The sheriff and Nettles are married, something they deserved after they died in each other's arms earlier but the gang are confused and begin to investigate. They find that everything is perfect, each are accepted by their parents for their individuality. Pericles and Mr. E never went evil and Mayor Jones was never evil, he's just the PE teacher now? Velma and Hot Dog Water become the first same-sex couple in Scooby-Doo media a fact I really enjoy, for once the diversity is not just shoehorned in for the sake of it. Upon rewatch there are clues and Velma's relationship with Shaggy is a major catalcete for this. At no point does the show try to hide the fact that its central protagonists are all white and straight, 
instead it fleshes out its world with a selection of diverse characters who have personality beyond their gender or ethnicity. The gang learn that the reason the world is back to normal is that after the evil entity was destroyed, he never existed meaning none of the events of the last few hundred years ever happened, it also means there aren't any mysteries to solve. But then they receive a cryptic message from a new mystery and decide to investigate. They show ends with the gang driving off into the sunset with a lap track playing, the end titles are also different. I love this touch as it implies that maybe the audience has moved universes too, or that the entity had such wide-reaching consequences his destruction changed the fabric of the show as well as the universe. This show is near perfect, the ending is excellent as it has a finality and also suggests more mysteries to come, I don't want to revisit the story as it has concluded but I appreciate that I can imagine the future myself. This review has taken 26 pages of A4 in a really, really long time but I enjoyed every second of it. I tried to think of a conclusion or a thesis or something but I think I've said everything I want to say already. This show is part of the peak of children's animated content and yet is something to be enjoyed by all ages. Watch it. See you soon, hopefully.